Hey fans, the much-anticipated intuitive development class has dropped on my website, katherineannintuitive.com. It's six weeks long, once per week via Zoom, and if affordability has been an issue for you in the past, there is a sliding scale pricing available so you can choose the price that best fits your budget. If you are interested in learning more, then click the link in the show notes to check it out. And while I love doing this show and putting information about missing and murdered persons out there and feeling into their cases as a psychic and as a medium, I also work to make all of this possible. You can find me at katherineannintuitive.com for psychic development mentorship, for private readings, and for one-off questions that will receive a short video response delivered to your email. Also, starting in February of 2022, I will be opening another self-worth group program for women looking to connect with their value and learn to handle life's curveballs with grace, ease, and full faith that they can improve things for themselves and live a happier, more fulfilled, less stressful existence. Click the link in the show notes to get a free chat in order to see if this is a good fit for you. I'm your host, Katherine Gelvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge the Patreon in support of the show. I've added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of the production of this show. Keep those five-star reviews coming as they are what guides the podcast to new ears each week. And on a brief side note, I do want to take a second to apologize for last week's sound quality. I'm not sure what happened there, but I truly apologize for the echo and wow, that will not happen again. My recording space got rearranged a bit and in the holiday chaos, I just didn't have the time to fix it. So again, if you got through it, yay. If not, then I can assure you the sound will be much better quality going forward. Okay. Okay. This has been one of the most requested cases since I started murder and mediumship, and I'm not even going to bother with beating around the bush, but we're getting straight to the point today. This is the unsolved murder of Tupac Shakur. On September 7th, 1996, Tupac Shakur was riding in a black BMW with the owner of his recording label, Suge Knight of Death Row Records. Hours prior, Tupac had just attended a big fight between his buddy Mike Tyson and Bruce Seldon. He and Suge Knight and the death row entourage headed back to MGM Grand Hotel, where Tupac was to head back to his room and change in preparation for a performance he was putting on at Club 662, owned by Suge Knight in Las Vegas, Nevada. The concert was a benefit show, and Tupac was to be performing there as part of his community service. I just want to take a second here because I realize I may not have even said who Tupac was, but if you don't know, then just get off of here, go on YouTube and do some listening for a few hours and then come back. In December of 1994, Pac was convicted of forcibly touching a woman's buttocks, a first degree felony. She had accused Pac and his death row entourage of raping her in their hotel room where they had invited her back to not once, but twice. Her second visit, she asserted that Pac's entourage gang-raped her, and Pac stood by his innocence and appealed the case, but essentially bail during the appeals process was set at $1.4 million, and Pac just couldn't swing that, despite his growing fame. Hip-hop mogul, shoot, excuse me, Suge Knight, I knew I was going to do it at least once, Suge Knight started his career in the music industry as a bodyguard to many celebrities, but most notably Bobby Brown. He eventually went on to co-found Death Row Records with Michael Harrison, a former drug kingpin in L.A. known as Harry O. 
So here's when Suge and Tupac meet and why Tupac was ever in the car in Vegas in the first place with Suge. Suge heard about Pac's prison predicament and he knew that Pac was also in one of the most dangerous prisons in New York State, Clinton Correctional Facility, where it is that Pac was in solitary 23 out of 24 hours of the day because of his fear for his life while in prison. Suge offered Tupac an opportunity he likely felt he couldn't say no to. He really had no choice. He offered Pac the $1.4 million in bail if he would agree to producing three records with Death Row Records. And so Pac made that bail. So Pac made bail because of Suge and was now under contract with Death Row Records. And I'm not entirely sure of the stipulation of this community service agreement that Pac was actually obligated to legally perform at Club 662. And if someone would like to like steer me straight on this, was this a contractual thing with him and Suge or was this a legal thing with like an outstanding legal entity? I don't think that it was. Um, so if anyone can further explain that to me, that would be great. But from what I gather, this service was more like what Suge required of Pac than it was any community service put upon him by a court condition of bail. I digress. It's rumored that Pac did not want to go to Vegas and that he tried up until the final hour to get out of making the trip altogether. And in fact, he had wanted to go help some family out in the state of Alabama instead that weekend, but Pac headed to Vegas with his cousin and his girlfriend, Kadita Jones, where he hung out in the casinos with the death row entourage winning big at the craps table. He was winning big and flying even higher that night after he witnessed his friend Mike Tyson take Bruce Selden down in less than two minutes, which brings us back to where we started, the hotel lobby of MGM Grand in Vegas with the death row entourage. Shook Knight was a known mob pyro, and mob pyro is a blood-affiliated gang out of the Compton area of L.A., most of Shug's employees, his bodyguards, were affiliated with the Bloods, and a few of them were actually ex-police or actively crooked cops still working for law enforcement. One of the entourage, I believe his name was uh, Trayvon Lane, pointed out to pointed out Orlando Anderson to Tupac in the lobby of MGM Grand. Anderson was a crip, an enemy of the Bloods, and had evidently robbed Trayvon earlier in the week or assaulted him. There was some sort of altercation. And the thing is, with getting all of this testimony and doing the research for this case, it's really hard to say that you're getting the truth because can you really trust gang members and ex-cons who are like violent offenders and drug dealers and like rapists and violent criminals? I feel like probably not. So this is where I'm really glad that I initially feel into the case and then I do the research so that I'm not tainting my mind with what it is that I'm seeing and putting logic to it. However, I do want to take this opportunity, whether you believe me or not, is up to you. My knowledge of pop culture is, oh my God, slim at best. It's terrible. So anything that I was seeing and anything that I'm sharing today is all information I learned over the last week or so in researching this case because I definitely did not have much prior knowledge other than Tupac and Biggie had a quarrel and they both ended up dead. That's pretty much all I knew. So anyway, Suga's mob Pyru, most of his employees are affiliated with the Bloods and a few of them were crooked cops, blah, blah, blah. Anderson was a crip and an enemy of the Bloods. So fired up from winning big and fired up from watching Tyson win big, Pac approached Anderson and punched him twice. 
The rest of the entourage joined in, including Suge Knight and Frank Alexander, Pac's main bodyguard. So this was actually caught on hotel security cameras. And after kicking the crap out of Anderson, Pac was pulled from the fight and headed back to his room where he got ready to head out to meet up with Suge at his Vegas mansion. Kadita and his, and, um, Puck's cousin both comment on how unusual it was that he didn't wear his bulletproof vest that night. And I, I do believe that he was told by Suge not to wear it. Why exactly? I'm not positive. But as I've said before, as a psychic, as a medium, we don't have all the answers or the world would be in a much better place, I would say. Upon arriving to Suge's mansion, according to various bodyguards, and oh my God, there are so many interviews and I'll link as many as I can in the show notes. But according to various bodyguards present the night that Pac was shot, Suge and Pac disappeared for about half an hour, about about 30 minutes, while everyone waited to leave for the club. Suge had asked all of the bodyguards and anyone in their caravan, which I believe was about five vehicles, to leave their weapons that evening. No one would be armed. As Frank Alexander approached the backseat of the BMW to ride with Pac and Suge, he was given the keys to a different vehicle and asked to drive so that he could be the designated driver for everyone later. Now, Frank Alexander says that Pac had asked him to drive a Lexus rather than ride in the back of the BMW. I don't know that this was something that Pac and Suge had decided on. But anyway, Alexander did as he was told. And being a very unusual thing, Pac and Suge rode just the two of them with no protection. Pac was in the passenger seat and Suge was driving. Not only were they told to turn in their guns, but they also didn't have their radios on them, so there wasn't even any communication between the five vehicles either. There was one bodyguard who refused to turn over his gun, and he was actually sent ahead to Club 662 to join the others who were already there. He was not allowed to ride in the convoy, the caravan, whatever you want to call it, with the others. Again, they're headed to a benefit concert at Club 662, which is owned by Suge Knight. Which, by the way, 662 spells out mob on a phone keypad, you know, like mob pyru. Anyway, I'm curious as to why a benefit concert for really anyone would be held at a gang-affiliated club. But I mean, there's a lot I don't understand about this type of environment. And then really the hundreds of parts of this case that would lead you down different irrelevant paths. It's just we could have an episode that could go on for days just in the conspiracy theories and and all of the information that you get from all different sides of this case. This is like, oh my God, this is what rabbit holes, the rabbit holes you could go down. I digress. I posted on my Instagram the other day asking who everyone thought killed Tupac. And oh my God, the vast array of answers that I received from government to his record label owner, Shook Knight, to Orlando Anderson, the crypt that they beat up that night. But it's almost as if like all of these perfect little pieces are there, but they're part of a much larger puzzle. Shady police officers, the FBI, Biggie, P. Diddy, everyone has been accused, but so much question is still left. And if this had happened in today's age, I guarantee that there would have been some CCTV footage of the shooting happening. But in 1996, it wasn't so much of a thing. And frankly, even if they had shoddy footage of this, no one would have validated any information as this would have completely violated the anti-snitch culture that was present in in these gangs and in these neighborhoods and, and just in this culture. So Tupac was actually attacked a couple years prior. I believe he was in New York City at the time. Um, and I don't, 
it was the recording studio lobby. And he, when he was attacked, he actually made a song about like five shots wouldn't take him down. And he was fairly certain that Biggie had something to do with it. Well, all in all, and I'll say this again later, I don't think that Biggie really had any direct knowledge of what was happening here, but I do believe someone he was closer to did. So here we are with Tupac Shakur riding in the passenger seat with Suge Knight driving. And as they're on Flamingo Street in Vegas, about two blocks from where the concert venue was, they're stopped at a red light and a car full of girls up on the left of them, pulls up on the left of them and Tupac opens the window. The ladies man that he was, from what I understand, he's chatting with them, undoubtedly inviting them to the show and flirting as he's known to do. Witnesses have said that he was like standing outside of the, um, the moon roof, like, like wrapping his, his album on the way to the club. He was drawing a lot of attention to himself. And for someone who just got into a fight, into an altercation with a well known higher up gang member, I feel like this wasn't a very smart thing to do. And I just, I don't understand how it was logical to not have any weapons. But anyway, As these women are flirting with Pac, a white Cadillac pulls up to the right of them with four passengers in it, and Tupac's window is down while the back window drops down on the Cadillac and a string of shots are fired off rapidly, spraying the passenger door of Suge's BMW with bullets. One grazed the head of Suge Knight, leaving him bloodied, and as you will hear from Keefy D, excuse me, he will, he's the uncle of Orlando Anderson. He says that he thought Suge was killed. And if you watch some of the interviews with him, the way that he says it, it kind of triggers something for me because I feel like maybe he also wanted Suge dead. Anyway, the flesh wound left him appearing much worse than he actually was. And Pac was actually hit four times. And one of the bullets lodged into his right lung, which would later be removed in an attempt to save his life. The shot that ultimately led to his death six days later. As the car sped off, an LAPD sergeant, Chris Carroll, was the first on the scene and repeatedly asked Suge to get onto the ground. He assumed that Knight was involved as he was dripping in blood as he got out of the vehicle. And standing at about six foot four and very wide, Knight was intimidating for anyone, but as large as he was and as frightful as he must have looked dripping in blood, Carroll needed him on the ground. And I mean, this guy... Knight, Shook Knight was supposed to be a football player. He went to school, he played football in college, and he played a couple of games during a football strike. You know, I, I believe it was for the LA Rams or something. I'm probably messing that up, but it's not that important. I just want you to realize this guy is a freaking behemoth, okay? So according to an interview with CNN, Carol says that Knight just kept coming up behind him and it was making him so nervous as he had clearly been hit in the head but seemed to have his senses about him still. And I mean, that would probably really freak me out too. But I mean, he was in shock, I imagine. As Carol would point his gun at night, Knight would put his hands up and back off, but continued coming up on him. As Carol opened the passenger door, Tupac Shakur slumped out. And there's a thing in law enforcement called the dying declaration. If you're dying and you can say who had hurt you, that is admissible in court rather than being cast as hearsay as it would be otherwise. Carol kept asking Tupac to tell him who did this to him, who did this to him, but Pac kept looking at Shook. According to Carol, he saw something change in Pac's face when he finally started listening to him rather than looking at Shug. And when he asked him, who shot you? 
As much as he detested law enforcement, Pac looked straight at Carol and said, fuck you, before he started to slip in and out of consciousness and choking on his blood. Pac would never say who shot him that night, and Suge, Suge wouldn't say anything either, just as the rest of the entourage remained largely uncooperative. So who did it? Who shot Tupac? And this is an interesting situation because the way in which spirit comes through is always so different. I've had people, I've had spirit on the other side who practically like pulls up a chair and they're chatty. You heard me talk about, I believe it was Brittany Drexel, who felt like she was just sitting on her desk, on my desk, like kicking her feet while she was talking to me. Rilisha Rudd was so clear next to me, showing me the way that she was driven in that white van. And then I've had clients who like show me like, oh, this is my phone holster. And I convey that to their children. Why am I seeing a phone holster? And it's, oh my God, my dad was so proud of that. He was so nerdy. We picked on him for it. There are so many different ways that spirit can show up. But when their personality really comes across, it feels so good. And I, I got to say this too. It, it doesn't always feel good. It felt good when Tupac came through. But to have heard him in my mind, to connect with him as a medium, and then to go listen to interviews and hear his voice sounding so similar, it always floors me. And again, you don't have to believe that I didn't know what the man sounded like talking. It's really not up to me. At the end of the day, the way he showed up, his presence was so strong. And and he was he was very funny, actually. But in connecting to Tupac, his energy being very forthcoming, while I explain this on a lot of my episodes in case you've never heard it, I tune into the energy of the case, connect as a medium to the victim, And if they're willing to communicate with me, I write down whatever information I get without editing it or trying to make sense of it. And then I begin to research the case and collect as much as I can with reputable and reliable sources. The first thing that I wrote down with with this case was three shots, delay one shot. And I'm wondering if this is like the three hit him in rapid succession and then if you missed and one more landed. And I realized not a lot of time passed, but that seemed very distinct to me. And I'm almost thinking the last shot that hit him was the one that did the most internal damage. From what I could find and with wide speculation, just finding straight up facts is difficult enough. But from what I could find, the weapon sounded like it came from someone had said like an automatic weapon, but I'm pretty sure it was a Glock. So again, witness testimony isn't even always accurate because you're in the middle of this insane experience. You're not really seeing everything as it's really happening or hearing everything as it's really happening. Um, So we're going to start here. I do think that Pac was the intended target that night, but I also believe that Suge was aware at Pac's growing concern about where all of his money was. At the time of his death, Pac had only $200,000 to his name, yet his albums had grossed millions. He was unhappy with the percentage of his revenue that Death Row Records was taking from him. And frankly, the way that the contract was even arranged, I'm fairly certain I read somewhere that it was like handwritten on some lined paper. And the attorney who represented Pac was the attorney who represented um, Suge. So how can that even be fair? I'm not sure that it would have stood up in court. It kind of sounds like it was legal bullshit that convinced him to even go to Vegas with Knight. He was essentially told he was obligated to it or Knight could and would take legal action. Interestingly enough, in my humble, very briefly educated in law, like paralegal level and never worked as one professionally, I do think when you sign a contract in a prison conference room just to get out of a prison where you're being threatened and fear for your life regularly, that kind of feels like signing a contract under duress to me. But like I said, who knows? 
Anyway, Suge took advantage of Pac's vulnerable predicament and knew that he was getting more than his fair share of a cut from Pac's albums. I do also believe that Suge knew something would happen that evening. Number one, because of the beatdown of Orlando Anderson, a known crip, and the Crips have an affiliation with another rap mogul, but on the East Coast, Sean Puffy Combs. I do not believe that Orlando Anderson killed Tupac, although I do believe that the fight with him that evening, and I do believe he was present for it, was a lucky occurrence for Puff, who had already hired someone, Keefe D, Orlando's uncle, to take other Crips out with Shug. Excuse me, to take, okay, and some other Crips to take him out, like Tupac and Shug. Shug knew that a retaliation would be likely, but he also felt invincible himself. He was delusional. Shug knew that he had multiple contracts out on his life and, in fact, would openly brag about this. So why he removed all communication and weapons, I can't exactly tell. But what comes to mind is that he maybe knew that someone was coming for Pac and he wanted to make sure that Pac was taken rather than him, or that maybe letting Pac take the hit would be better than him being killed, I'm not entirely sure. I will never tell you that I feel something very strongly that I can't absolutely say I'm feeling, so I'm going to leave that at that. Suge was originally brought into Death Row Records, though, as a business student with a respectable taste for business and an ambitious drive. However, he began to push Harry O. Michael Harrison out of the picture and began to bring LAPD officers in that were part of the rampant drug trafficking scandal in LA at the time. He turned Death Row Records into a criminal enterprise, and this is all, of course, according to Harry, if his word can be trusted. Pac, like Dr. Dre, knew that if he stayed with Death Row Records, Death Row Records' original client, that he would be killed. And that was a huge part in wanting to leave after he had paid his debt to them, his three albums. What Suge couldn't have known was that the very person they assaulted and fucked up earlier, Orlando Anderson, it didn't even matter. Suge had already had a hit out on him from Sean Puffy Combs, and I do believe that Suge wanted Tupac gone as well. He knew that he would make more money off of him in death and had cranked out enough music with Pac to release multiple albums after Tupac's death. Pac was a pawn in Suge's scheme. He didn't care who he had as long as he had someone making him money. So when people say that they think Pac's record label had to do with his death, they're not wrong. Suge Knight was saving his own face and sacrificing Pac. Though he was making the money, he didn't think it would be the end of an era or the beginning of a downfall of death row records. Some say that the government was involved, and frankly, on some level, they were. Corrupt police officers kept information hidden in order to save their own asses, on the gang side of things, but not only that, the FBI had been following Suge Knight for ages as he was involved in a lot more illegal activity like drug trafficking. For example, the man he co-founded the record label with was at one time a huge name in the LA drug trafficking scene, and here was Suge in business with him. My point here is that even with an undercover FBI informant in with Mob Pyro and Death Row Records, they weren't about to blow their cover for the death of a rapper who had earlier picked a fight with an enemy gang member. They had a bigger mission at hand, or at least that's how they saw it. I believe they thought they were going to get a lot of information from being inside of this gang, and I do believe that
um, who he was. And if, if that sounds insane to you, that someone could like force that on you, then I want you to look into what Suge Knight did to Vanilla Ice to get the rights of his song Ice Ice Baby signed over to them. The man was a bully. He was a bully, and that is an understatement. Pac's energy is actually very gentle, and it's it's very patient. And his eyes, when you look at a photo of him, they make me get a lump in my throat. They're the eyes of an empath, of someone who really felt the pain and the struggle of not just those immediately around him, but the world as well. Pac wasn't killed by just one person, though one person is responsible for pulling the trigger. He would have been killed in retaliation even if the hit wasn't ordered on him by the East Coast owner of Bad Boy Records. However, I think too that even if Pac hadn't kicked the heck out of Orlando Anderson, aka Baby Lane, Keefy D's nephew, the hit would have still been orchestrated. I think Suge knew it was coming, and that's also why he was so adamant that Pac came to Vegas. Pac had to show up so that Suge's own life was safe, and Suge and Diddy, Puffy, whatever we're calling them these days, their their fight was between them, but Biggie and, and Pac, they were like little chess pieces for them. When I connect to Pac and I ask him, what do you want us to know about this whole experience, about making it to the top to get roped back into the lifestyle over and over and over again? The message that I receive in return is to stay true to yourself, to trust your instincts as they could have saved his life. Nothing felt right about signing with with Suge, but I had no choice, is what Pac said back. He wanted nothing more than for his voice to be heard and for it to speak to those and for those who either weren't able to articulate their similar experiences or wouldn't articulate them. When I ask if he would have done anything differently, what I hear is, I'd have put on the vest, know what I mean? And he kind of laughs a little bit. And one final question for Pac, I asked him what he would do in today's political climate and social climate. And his response was basically that he'd look out for his people, but for himself first. And had he had his own back, not been so carried away, which is getting through with Suge and moving on to whatever his own move would have been next, I maybe would have seen it coming. I'd focus on my poetry more because that hate that's fueling this shit today, that can only be cast out by love. Don't get me wrong, I'd fight, but I would know what I was fighting for this time. And you know me, I say goodbye in the show like 10 times. So I always have one more and one more and it's just how I am. So I was thinking too about what people say that Pac seemed okay in the hospital. According to Suge and his girlfriend, he had this experience where he was talking to them or he seemed like he was better. And what Pac said back to me was that for a second, he thought that he thinks that they thought he was turning around, like he was making a comeback and and what he said, but when I could see Suge, when I could see my girl, when I could see my moms, I could see my grandmoms. And I didn't even know her. I wasn't getting better. I was heading out. And I, I think that's it's important to note too that his grandmom had passed away at a very young age. I Googled this after hearing this and she passed away in like 1956 or something. Like she was only 26 years old. And when he said, I didn't even know her, I was, I wasn't getting better. I was heading out. It's, it's interesting because you hear of experiences like this very often where people kind of act like they're doing a lot better. They're more active. They're like sitting up, they're talking, they're okay. And then the next day or so they're gone. So I know you're all dying to know as well, but one asked if Biggie was killed in retaliation. I heard, yes, absolutely, yes. Puff took from Suge, 
So Shug took from Puff, and we didn't mean nothing to them. They were always going to find another meal ticket. We didn't mean a thing. And in closing, as I don't normally share my conversations with those on the other side, but when speaking with celebrities, sometimes it's easier to get this real like back and forth conversation established because they're used to doing interviews. And this is actually a technique that we use to practice in my mediumship psych development classes. I've seen other teachers do it too, which by the way, begins the first week in February and is available on that sliding scale basis. So you pay what you can afford. Tupac Shakur was 25 years old when he was gunned down. He was gunned down by Keefe D, who then blamed his dead nephew, Orlando Anderson. Orlando then died in May of 1998 at an unrelated gang event in LA. Pac's bodyguard, Frank Alexander, who was found in his home in Murrieta, California in May of 2013, it was an, it was supposedly a suicide. My little spidey senses say that it was just more disposing of another person who knew a little bit too much. Also, the killer of Biggie is now dead as well. Suge Knight is now in prison for 28 years as of 2018 for a um, manslaughter charge, a voluntary manslaughter charge. He intentionally ran over a man and attempted murder on another one at a burger stand in 2014. Just to be clear, I do not believe that Biggie had anything to do with the death of Tupac Shakur. Next week, we resume with a little bit of spice for January with some well-known cases coming in throughout the month and some guest hosts as well. So thanks for sticking through the bumps along the way. And as always, send your requests to Katherine Gelvin at KatherineAnnIntuitive.com. And you all, I hope you're making it through your holiday season. And if it gets a little bit too tricky for you, just turn up the true crime in your ears like I do. And y'all enjoy 2022.